0: that's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: Hello. Welcome to the Snooker Scene podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. There's rejoicing throughout the land because the A to Z of snooker is back. And uh, over a couple of podcasts, we're going to complete the alphabet. I've sat down in Coventry with Phil Yates, Neil Folds and Alan McManus. And the first letter is R. Okay, so we've reached R. Now, I was going to do Ronnie, but I thought we've spoken so much about Ronnie, and we all, everyone kind of knows what we think, and we know what everyone else thinks about him. So instead, it's the exciting topic of re Um... Which you get now and again, and we've had uh, we had one at the Championship League this year, uh, which I commentated on after two shots. Ryan Day and Barry Hawkins and redwood over the yellow pocket, and they're just going to roll to the pack. So that was the quickest ever re-rack. We had one in China on pink and black, Matt Selt and Chris Wakelin, which, um, you know, you just think of the futility of, all, of the whole frame. And the ball's got wedged in the pocket, and, uh, and off we go. But one thing I wanted to... Um, bring up was something Clive Everton's talked about Phil, which is carrying over points from a re frame because you sometimes get a frame where someone's sort of 40 in front, there's nothing happening and his argument is if those points carried on, you could just
2: they would accept the re rack immediately. I think it's a good idea. I think re racks in general happen a lot more quickly these days than ever before. Before, it really was the intervention of the referee that caused them. Nowadays, I think it's when the players get together by mutual consent. That's by far the most often, you know, the, the, the most um, recurring reason for a re-rack. And I think Clive's idea is a pretty good one. The vast majority of re-racks occur when there's very little between the two players, let's face it. But we've had the instance where there has been a, a large amount of points between the two. The classic example being Willie Thorne Andy Hicks at the World Championship. Mm-hmm. Thorne was 50 on in front, and he was instructed by the referee John Williams to get on with it, basically, and to try and break the impasse. Willie wasn't very happy. Hicks eventually won the frame, and Hicks came out with that famous quote: "Yeah, Willie was just a huffing and a puffing." <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh,
2: so what, that didn't actually go to a rewrap, then that frame.
3: No, because a lot no. of people think it did. No, no. He,
1: yeah, that, yeah, he was, but it kind of Willie obviously lost his uh,
2: lost his sort of uh, concentration, I guess, with it all. He missed an easy ball actually It was nothing to do with the re rack how he lost the frame right. But because of the intervention of the referee He said his head was in a jam
4: jar And he missed an easy ball and consequently lost the frame yeah. Well I've actually been involved in a frame and folds He gives me plenty of stick about it in the past I think is about the third or fourth longest frame in history yeah, Against yeah. Uh, Barry Pinches, And it was one of those I was the guy who was about 45 in front And about six or seven reds got down Blocked, the black was over, bag one And the reds were set So what am I going to do? You know, you're forty five in front, he's probably playing for a re rack and he's got every right, you know, but so um that that was the reason. It went on for about fifty minutes, the the t- tipping and tapping. But you you know, you're both playing to win, you both want to win, so you know, that's the reason it was a long frame, it was nothing mm. else apart from that. But uh carrying over the points is a tough one, isn't it, you know? Um I don't really know. I've not really thought about that. You yeah. and Barry, no, no one's taking the backward step. But you
3: and
2: Barry Pinches are they? No. That could that could no. still be going on now? No, <clears throat> no it was a pair of high, Highland Stags. Yeah, right? <laughs> button heads. The, yeah. the rear rack I remember very well. Trying to erase it from my mind, but I still can't. Was Gary Wilkinson, Dennis Taylor. I think it was their first frame in a Welsh Open match. It was re-racked after 56 minutes. 56 minutes, yeah.
3: I had to, my first ever appearance at the, um, in the Masters. A lot of expectation. I played Dennis, and that we had started off. I think very early in the match, we had two consecutive re-racks, and completely knocked the steam out of it. Yeah. You felt that people were getting a bit restless and leaving already. So it was not much fun, really. That's yeah. that's it for me. Yeah, I think that. I think you know, there must be a reason why. We don't carry the points forward. Would there be anything we haven't thought of? That could, it
1: could may be just be that no one has sort of ever brought it forward as a. I mean, Clive's m- mentioned it, but in terms of an official, it's been on about capacity, a long time, it, Clive yeah. years, mm. you know about that. Next time they, have, yeah, next time they have like Brendan, Yan, and, and Paul, uh, the referees there, sort of the rules, they lock themselves away every year, don't they, in a, in a room? Maybe we should send someone into that room and with this idea. When the white smoke comes out,
3: that's
2: yeah. when they emerge with the new rules. <laughs> I think generally I like the idea, but if you're fifty six in front, say with five reds left. That's a much more healthy position than being fifty-six in front with fifteen reds left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll we won't. We'll, we'll
1: leave it there. We won't do do that subject again and have no, a rerun. I don't it. think so. Yeah, no. No. <laughs> dull. wasn't that really? <laughs> 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 it we waited yeah, a year anyway. for this. Yeah, so That was yeah. really dull. Okay. Uh, the next one is S for shot clock. Now, then, this is ties into kind of uh, slow play and all the rest of it. Um, obviously, there's a shot clock in the shootout. There was sort of talk, it was in the Premier League, there was sort of talk it and make them into ranking events. And I was always dead against it, and I still am. And it's kind of gone away, hasn't it? You know, they've got the the average shot times now on the World Snooker website. But I think what a lot of people don't realise is what we think of as slow
2: players now are nowhere near as slow as the real old slow players of years gone by. I think the old sort of slow play debate is actually redundant because the vast majority of players who play too slowly are tucked away in qualifiers that nobody ever sees anyway. Let's face it, at the top end of the game, it's never been faster. I just think uh, average shot times, OK, it might be an interesting little statistical sort of diversion. And we now know that Tep is the fastest on the circuit. Great, but slow play is not a problem in
4: snooker at the moment. It's less of a problem now than it's ever been. I, I actually don't agree uh, because, because probably I play it all the qualifying. There's a few guys that just drive you completely nuts. Frankly, and it's to me, it's completely ridiculous, and something should be done about them. Um, but that at, at the quality, I did say at, at yeah, the qualifying, yeah, it's at, at tournaments on TV, it's not a problem, is it? I've played guys in the last three or four years, and they're in the balls absolutely plumb on a red with only one shot they can play, and they're walking around the table two and three times. I, 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 one of the guys I played, he got warned by the referee at the end of a frame, Um it was in the world championship. I know who that is, but I'm not gonna uh, say he got warned and he, he turned round to referee and he says, What he could he, he was shocked. He couldn't believe it, but it was totally ridiculous. He had a red just below the pink spot with the rest. Stun it in you're on the black. There's only one shot he can play. He took three minutes to to play the red. He's walking around, picking the rest up, putting it away, picking it back. It's totally ridiculous. And it became a non match. I just wanted out of there. It was and, and, and there was another guy as well. Um I was three one down, and uh, one of my mates checked his average shot time. Uh, so he's three one up, and his average shot was thirty eight seconds a shot, and it was totally and utterly ridiculous. But that's I'm I'm going on one because it really just drives you nuts, you but know. The, the problem is because um, I know that Sean Murphy's spoken about
3: a shot clock. In a one table setup, you could have it, but how do you have it when there's eight tables, all these clocks, all buzzers, and everything? Yeah, how do you do that? Yeah that's the problem with but
1: no don't yeah. talk about that problem and all, but also the, is it within like you said the player's been warned it's within the rules the referee can it's time wasting isn't it that's what it's always been covered under um so they can actually yeah. step
4: in but it, it's they don't always do it do they? The yeah, the, yeah the problem the, the 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 sort of the crime or not crime but it's already been the committed mm. and the damage has kind of been done by the it's, you know um could could there be a thing where they, they have a um 32nd or whatever it is on the scoreboard and it maybe, I don't know it flashes red when it gets to five without any noise and if the guy goes over the time two or three times maybe they could have against his name like three lights or something the first first offence one light comes on mm. second offence two lights so that the guy then knows what's the penalty there? Arrested uh, well <laughs> apart from being arrested uh, they, they, they should basically visit
2: over and ball yeah. in hand to the other yeah. guy yeah. and as Jumping. everyone on this table knows it would actually do them a
4: favour because yeah. no one in the history of the yeah. game has ever slowed down considerably yeah. there was, become better for it yeah. there was no. another guy I, I seen a couple of seasons ago he played against a friend of mine um he potted a long red. He's absolutely perfect on the black, and I actually deliberately sat and watched the match just to see how slow it was going to be. And he took five minutes to pot a, a black and a blue, and that that is, and he's absolutely. I promise you, he's perfect on the black. He's perfect on the next red and then he's perfect on the blue. It took him over five minutes to play those four shots. So basically, I think what
3: Alan is saying, Phil, is there is a problem with it of a few and we don't get to see much of it. You're right, but mm. it, you know, it doesn't mean it should happen. And I mean, I think the, the, the slow players now aren't as slow. I mean, the two slow players when I was first-term professional was Robbie Fulvari and Ian Williamson and they played each other once, didn't they? And it mm. was... Um, as well, it was seven-hour matches, yeah. wasn't it?
1: They, the were best put, nine? they were pulled off initially at two each. Yeah, <laughs> over around yeah, yeah. the, yeah. the session. Three referees went through, didn't yeah.
4: yeah. they? What, what, what would you guys think about something like that? You know, next to your name and, and, and a big, obviously, thirty-second countdown, and maybe three strikes, and you're out, ball in hand, or well, or I foul guess some people
1: would maybe say there are certain shots, and we've seen them we're here in commentary well you actually you, you do take a minute to look at it because oh, it's a very yeah. important safety shot or something so
4: should should you be penalized for but, that but the, the other thing is uh, should the shot clock only come into operation once you put a red okay right yeah so then so if you on be on a break then you could say well it's up, it's up to the player to get on with it you know
2: and there are two forms of slow players as we all know the ones who are genuinely slow mm. And the other ones who have become slow to gain an advantage against mm. certain opponents. Yeah. And I think the ones who are genuinely slow, they're not trying to pull any strokes. They just That's the way they are. Some of them don't know they're slow. They
4: don't, they just do not know. Exactly, the guy who was shocked sure. in the World Championship when he was warned by um, the referee, he couldn't believe it. Well, and he shouldn't and be because he is slow, the it guy. Was, I know it was completely ridiculous. Mm. You know, but there we go but it is
2: a two-tier problem though. there's no doubt yeah, about. I mean, we, must, yeah. oh, we don't go to qualify so we don't see this but I mean actually a tournament certainly we're talking here at the champion of champions yeah. it's a completely non-issue annoying, but it is yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, well we should vote then I think not that it's going to make any difference but who thinks a shot clock uh, no one
1: can see it either so, but who thinks a shot clock should be, should be some sort of shot clock should be introduced hands up uh, Alan's hands up yeah <laughs> I think there should be a shot clock but I think the penalty
3: for slow play should be you a percentage of your earnings for that tournament should be mm. should be the fine nothing to do with on you can't dock a frame or ball in hand i think i mean don't forget it's it's ranking points now so say you earn five thousand pounds out of a tournament and you you you've been slow you might get twenty
2: percent of that taken off and that's twenty percent that you're ranking for that tournament gone. Mm. I would suggest that maybe a shock clock could be introduced if the problem persists. But I think first, you give the referees a lot more power than they've got already or at least you give the referees a lot more perceived power than they've got already and just let them step in and say enough's enough. They yeah. won't do that. The uh, referees yeah. won't do that. They've that's never right. done
4: it. Yeah, because I, And I can understand why. They, mm. they just want to do their job, get out of there and, and not um, cause any issues. They're, they're not going to they're they're right. yeah. step in Yeah,
3: because I think somebody did that years ago and warned a player and if I'm not mistaken,
1: I think he got a letter from his solicitor over it player solicitor well I'm still against it but anyway we'll move on T is for television and that's the the one reason really we're we're all here earning a living out of the game players included you can be the best snooker player in the world but without exposure it doesn't mean anything and it's a great success story it's 50 years we mentioned Pop Black on the last one it's 50 years since Pop Black which started it all there's something about snooker as a game rather than the professional sport as an actual game to watch that is just perfect for TV and one of the reasons, I guess, let's be honest, it's quite cheap to cover in terms of, you're not outdoors,
2: you can get it all on one camera, and it's just, it's just worked for decades, Phil, isn't it? It's cheap to cover, yeah, definitely. Um, and also, the actual television rights for snooker are quite cheap as well, so consequently, it fills hours upon hours of uh, TV schedules, and it still consistently produces massive figures, not just here in the UK, but over the, the world as a, as a whole. The, the figures are incredible. Mm.
1: Neil, how did it, your sort of life change from when you were a player, you know, playing locally in clubs and so on, turning professional, and then suddenly you're on television? Yeah. Did you did you was it like a sudden thing? Suddenly people kind of know who you are?
3: Yeah, because I, you know I was lucky enough to play in an era when snooker was a big thing. I mean, it still is, but in you know in what I'm saying is that when it was first on the BBC, it really was a big deal, wasn't it? There was a, you, you, everyone knew who the players were, um, and yeah, I, I, it changed everything. I mean, I didn't particularly like it. Getting recognised and all that, uh, I do don't mind it now because it doesn't happen so much. You're more <laughs> grateful. But no, it didn't you know? I didn't really didn't really suit me. Uh, other people would love it, but um, yeah, it, you know, he's played a huge part. Of it. I mean, I played in the in, in my first TV experience was Junior Pop Black, which was terrifying actually for most people. And my first match on the TV as a pro was against Bill Webernick in the Yamaha Organs, and then but I got better, you know, more coverage from then and. You know, I think we have to all be very
1: grateful for what TV you know, and snooker have given us, really. Mm, because you get people who complain that formats, oh, it's all for, done for telly. Well, yeah, it's done for telly because they're paying the rights fees. Every tournament has been invented for TV. The World Championship existed pre-TV, but the format was changed to suit television. Every format that we see is to suit television because ultimately they're paying the wages. And there's a lot of sports that we all remember from maybe 30 years ago that were big, big news on TV that have sort of disappeared a little bit. You know, but snooker is still mainstream,
2: and I think the viewing figures generally—they might have dipped a while ago, but they're back on the on the up again, and that's that's great news for everyone. I think you know these players who complain about the big names being on the main table. Does a tennis player complain about Federer being on the center court at Wimbledon, or or you know another big name in tennis, Nadal, Murray when he was playing well, Djokovic? No, they don't. It really is unfortunate and it, I think it's unfair as well that the top players get to play on the main table all the time. But I think it's just the way of the world and I don't think you can do anything about it.
1: Well, I remember at the UK Championship someone tweeted me because Ronnie was, you know, understandably on table one all the time and, and he said, oh no, he said they should share it around more. I said Ronnie should start like, on table four, then next match table three. I just felt like saying, OK, you promote a tournament, you go and stick Ronnie on table five, see how you get on. See how you get on. There'll be no interest from TV. You won't, There'll be no tickets sold because you know on table one because they're all on table five. Just there'll be no room round table five yeah. to, For anyone to get near d- it either. Yeah, it's, not, it's it's a meritocracy in as much as you all start at the bottom and you achieve what you achieve and then you earn your place. You know, playing on the main tables through that. But
3: just on Ronnie, I, I don't think. I mean, as far as I we were in um, the temperature about three or four years ago, um, they decided that Ronnie shouldn't always play on the main table because different setup there, isn't mm. it? And they said, well, you know, he's going to go out on one of the other tables. And a lot of people say, oh, yeah, the lighting's no good out there. You see how he gets on. Well, he played marvellous, actually. It made no difference no, to no, him. No, 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 no. He wouldn't care what table he was on. Yeah. But it's not down to him, is it, really? Yeah. It's down to the people watching and everyone wants to watch him. You know, interestingly now, with the TV and with Ronnie, you know, Judd Trump is the world champion, the world number one. Mm. And what happens you know, when they're playing at the same time? You know,
4: just who, gets, who gets first dibs? It should really be Trump, but mm. I'm not sure it will be. Mm. I know that... Um, some players down the years have got the hump, and if they're not on mm. the TV table, I, I, personally, I, everyone's different. Personally, I, I, I wouldn't care less if I if I was one of the top names in the game. I, I, I play, put me on anything as long as the table's good, and it's not roasting hot and whatever else, and you get the conditions are good. I would play in a broom cupboard. I don't care. Is there is there you a big know, difference real-
1: though in terms of like? how you feel playing on TV because obviously you've got the cameraman there and the lighting is different I guess
4: well as is I've always believed that some guys take to it like a duck to water and some guys don't you know um, can players learn to be more uh competent at playing under the cameras under the lights I think so I think one example of that is Dave Gilbert he's mm-hmm. been a guy who's taken mm-hmm. uh, you know quite a long time mm-hmm. to sort of come to terms with the conditions and, and maybe he doesn't like being on TV maybe <coughs> you know you don't really know I kind of like I enjoyed it it's a strange old thing and Neil will, will probably say the same it, I, when you play in front of it seems to me when you the more people you play in front of the easier it is right. it's kind of weird It's a bit. it's a bit like um, when you hear a noise, if you, if only one person makes a noise, you notice them. But if a hundred people make a noise, you don't. Mm. So I've always found it. I always found it easier and and sort of interesting actually. Just last night when Ronnie came in and and I, I asked him in the studio, is there a part of him that obviously wants to win? But is there a part of him that thinks right? There's a thousand people in here. I'm going to show them some real, real good mm. stuff. You know, I'm going to show them some real fancy stuff, which he did last night. Is there a part of them that, that thinks that way? Mm. And I, I think as a player, that it's a good thing if you do think that, right, oh, there's a big crowd in here. <coughs> I must be a good player because I'm out in front of these people. So, right, OK, I'm going to show them. Mm. Um, yeah. Logistically, of course, if
2: you put the wrong match on, on the main table and you put a big match on an outside table, it's a nightmare. The classic example was at the Welsh Open in Cardiff nearly 20 years ago, I think now. They put Stephen Hendry bear in mind twenty years ago they put Stephen Hendry and Jimmy White on an outside table when they were at the height of the game, at the height of their rivalry playing each other on an outside table because it was BBC Wales coverage and they put a Welshman on the main table. There was about 12 people watching the main table. Gil uh, and John were playing on the main table. <laughs> yeah, this outside <laughs> table was absolutely packed. Poor old Frank Baker, the security man. Yeah. It was the, one of the worst nights of his life You know because people were trying to pack in there and there literally wasn't room. And It would, it just exploded the theory that you should space it out and give everyone the same amount of chance because it just doesn't work. One
4: thing I would say down the years, and I, I don't obviously get to playing TV tables, uh, but very often these days but the tables play I think it's easier the tables just play better Mm. I mean you you see this week you know you see it at the Masters you see it at Sheffield the standards are awesome you know Um, for whatever reason I don't know but and I think the pockets play a little bit bigger on a TV table generally than an outside table it's It's seen that way doesn't it yeah I mean sometimes at World Championship qualifying that the red along the black cushions, the plague, you just wouldn't go near it because you, you can't pot it. It's Not so much now, but I remember probably probably seven, eight years ago, I, I remember playing on tables and it was just a no-go shot. You, you couldn't play it, but you get the crucible and you can play it, you know, brand-new cloth. They seem to be a little bigger. But then the table fitters will always say they're templates and, you know, they're all templated the same. But they seem to play better and bigger, tables. I don't know why.
1: I think one thing that has changed, and, and this is not me sucking up to anyone who might employ me, but the the quality of the coverage has improved over the years. You know, if you go back, in terms of the number of cameras, and even like in the eighties, like now we're used to the score. The strap, you know, it's always there, isn't it? To say what the score is back then, you know, you might wait ten minutes to find out what, what the mm-hmm. actual score in the in the frame was. Um, but I guess that's that's a natural kind of progression, isn't it? You know, all, all sport now is is done very very professionally. It's not done on the cheap, is it? It's done very professionally. The guys here working with ITV, you know, and, and Eurosport, BBC, all of them, they all work really hard to. You, you see these sort of VT packages, there might be a minute at the start of a program. Someone spent hours putting that together.
4: Well, well actually, I think uh, I don't know if I'm letting a cat out the bag here, but world snooker are now. I think they're doing. For the masters this year, they're doing like corporate boxes and corporate hospitality, mm. actually in the arena. I mean, that to me, that's a brilliant idea. Yeah. You know, there's, uh, it's going to be sort of a at the com box side. Obviously, at the black end of the table. There's going to be tiered boxes and like actual. There's going to be cordoned off little areas where people sit and actually like a, a, as if they're in like a nightclub or a cabaret club or something. You know, with a table and you can have a drink and. As long as all the commentators are are able to see the table. Exactly. (laughs) Also, yeah,
1: and and, uh, supplied with the same drinks and stuff as well.
2: I'll say two things about commentary which I think have improved as the years have gone on. One is that the wealth of information that we've now got at our fingertips, we've got what they call the, you know, what is it? Austin Elliott. Yeah, the the, the fruit machine there. What we call the fruit machine, it's basically got a load of different statistics on, which gives us an immense amount of information. What the, the viewer doesn't realise is that at most tournaments, pretty much all of them, David uh, Hendon here produces a phenomenal stat pack for us. So that really helps as well. We obviously do it's a lot. It's quite good, don't you? phenomenal. No, it's no, very no, good. No, it's... Be, be, best there's ever been. <laughs> uh, and so that really helps <laughs> as well. you have a look at it, Neil? And we've also, got, <laughs> known. we've also got a lot of enthusiasts as well. People like Chris Downer who does that Chris Crucible mm, Almanac, well, which is fantastic. like the Bible. It's phenomenal. Is phenomenal. Yeah. And then you've got... <laughs> Other websites like QTracker and (laughs) snooker.org as well. So that makes our life easier and that makes the the commentary product better as well. But also, the people who are doing it... Now, I've commented with scores of people over the years. And when people are players, you can never really gauge whether they're going to be any good or not until they go into that commentary box. Now, I mean, I knew Alan and, and Neil as a journalist for many, many years... When they came into the commentary box, it was an open book for me. I was completely, I wasn't sure whether they'd be any good or not. And it turns out they're the best in the business. Now that is the truth. There you go. Is it true? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he, he wants you to say nice about him, there. No, no. I've been rumbled. I've been rumbled. Is there
3: any truth that an unnamed player on his first time in the commentary box took two pints of beer into the commentary box? Do uh, you have I to know. name <laughs> the player? I'm not going to name it. Not done any more commentary since. Don't think. No. Well, I'm not going to say
2: that either. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> two points barely, yeah. and you thought one was for you, and it wasn't. Both for him. But yeah, I needed, I, I needed a, need a double whisky after. Okay. Yeah, just brilliant. finally on this subject,
1: I think the other thing that's changed is it's now all live, isn't it? You know, it used to be even people the great m- matches people remember. Very often they were just highlights. Mm. It wasn't always live in the in the eighties in the so-called golden era. Now it's all live. It's yeah. on Eurosport, ITV4, even the BBC. they might not, they'll be on the red button. You can see it somewhere. You can see it online. There's never been more of a chance to watch snooker than there is right now.
3: No, and I think that, actually, um, if you go back to when, um, a point where it wasn't all life, and I've done commentary on that, sometimes you would, towards the end of a frame, you wouldn't say a lot because you know that's never going to see the light of day again. Mm. But,
4: you no, know, sport has to be live in this era, mm. doesn't it? It's a brilliant thing um, that, that we do in ITV, I think, and, and Neil will remember. I, I don't know if it was... Uh, it might have been, I uh, with know, had two tables and, and one of the matches... I think there was two best of sevens on both tables every evening, so one of them went on till I think about one am. And but basically, the t- to let people know, the team basically just work together. And it's like the boss will will say, right, guys, can you jump into table two and and or, or uh, we're going to jump to table two, get two cameramen over there quickly. Let's finish it. And and if they they ask myself Neil or any of the the, the gang. Um, can you stay in the box? Yeah, no problem. Let's get it. But because you, you do appreciate the viewers, there'll be a lot of people sitting they want to see the end of the match. It's brilliant. I know yeah. we've gone on too long brilliant.
3: about this. The last yeah. thing I want to say about that is I, the, one of the times we did what you're saying, went to a different table late, and you had people sending tweets saying, oh, this is no good. I'll tell you why it's no good because there's nobody watching. And <laughs> and my, my grievance there is, if you think that in the 80s mm. there were anyone watching table two um, of a match at midnight, you're wrong. There's probably about half a dozen people there. It's just that you never got to see it live then. Yeah. Mm. So that's yeah. all it is.
1: Yeah. Now you get to see it. So that's that. Yeah.
3: You know, I'm done. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> right. So for the final one for this this edition is you. And you stands for unfulfilled potential. And this topic is about, we all, we've all seen players, certainly you guys would have, who you think mm. he's going to be a world beater. He's going to be a top player, maybe world champion. And they don't quite make it. I was thinking about the the Wilson who had this young players of distinction scheme years ago, and you had like Murphy, Maguire, Ali Carter, Ryan Day, but also a young guy from Scotland, Alan Burnett, was on it, and he turned pro, but he just for whatever reason, he didn't do what they did. And, and there's lots of examples of that, isn't there?
4: Yeah, uh, Alan Burnett. Uh, obviously, I know him not that well. He actually lives quite close by me. Um, he he took <coughs> a step away from the game right. um, when when he decided to put his cue away, and he he, he actually <laughs> it's funny he literally will not go in a snooker club anymore. One of his mates is actually a snooker table fitter mm. to this day. Um, and uh, I've asked him a couple of times, you know, uh, oh, he's going out for a beer with Alan. Oh, are you going to come in the club? No, he won't come in the club. So he took a step away. I don't really know how good he could have been because I never played in the same club as him. I know he was a good player. I don't think he was quite the, the sort of prodigy, the the... Uh, the, the Expectation of him being a top player. I don't think he was on the Maguire level and all mm. that, but he was a good player. Mm. There's been loads in there. I mean, mm. Neil would remember, and, and we all would. For me, from the time of turning uh, from amateur to pro, was Jonathan Birch. Mm. I mean, I played, yeah. I, actually, I played doubles with him at the Meta World Masters in 91, um, and he as an amateur was simply awesome. But when he turned pro, he just didn't seem to adapt to. Maybe the fact that everyone as a pro is a good player. You know, he was he was just bashing everyone up as, a, as an amateur. Tables were different, and he turned pro, and I know he had some health issues um, later on. Then, but he, he didn't seem to, uh, for whatever reason, make the step up. Don't know why. Yeah. But we all thought he was a certainty to do big
2: things. Yeah. He was runner up in the IBSF World Amateur Championship to Ken Doherty in Singapore, I believe it was, and it was just sort of a given that at the very least he was going to make it and become a fixture in the top 32 maybe even the top 16 Mm. just didn't really transpire a player from that similar era who was very very good and was an unfulfilled talent was Nick Dyson Mm. cracking player and I suppose nowadays Michael Holt would be right at the top of the list you know he's got a a great personality and it would be phenomenal if he did really, really well because he's such a nice guy and he just doesn't quite seem to be able to do it for whatever reason and it's a great shame because I think the world of him. Well, it's difficult to say about current players, isn't it? Because you don't know that they're not going to do it. Still, Michael Holt could still win something.
3: Um, The only one I can think of and it goes back even further, Terry Whitthread, Mm. he was from London. Uh, Very, very good player but he had issues off the table um, which made it very difficult for him actually um, without going into them. Uh, so that was very sad, and uh, David Gilbert, not Dave Gilbert now, the other one he was another very good player from London, and again, he, it's, things happened to him off the table, bereavements in, in in the case of both of those, and it completely changed their uh, outlook on Snooker, I think. Um, I think they are real, genuine cases of it of players who I think they both turned pro,
4: but I think the moment had gone for those. There There was was another guy actually when I played in the Scottish junior team. um, He was part of the Welsh junior team at Hemsby in eighty seven or eight. Paul Dawkins and I watched him. It was the home internationals. I think he was Joe Swale was in it. Ken was there. The bunch at Fergal, uh, Anthony Hamilton, Ebden, all these guys. and Paul Dawkins was by a distance, in my opinion, the best player amongst all that lot. I, 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 he was one you watched and you thought he, he could be a world champion, he was that good. But again, he went down a different avenue, I think he you know, maybe picked up some habits. I, 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 was, I don't really know, but um, he just didn't develop as a player into uh, being a pro. Well, there must have been a lot of players in when the
1: game went open at the Norbrecht, and they'd be kind of young Suddenly, they're away from home, you know, their chance to go out, have a few drinks, and so on. And, and I guess a few of them just did too much of that. I'm not saying anyone you've mentioned so far, but there'd be a lot of people who would have been talented juniors who maybe just didn't, weren't single
2: minded enough.
4: Another one to throw in the mix was David Gray. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, he, well, that's, yeah. Actually, he's yeah. Yeah. The, the big, big example of all. But yeah.
2: of course, yeah. conversely, you get people who come into the pro ranks and you don't think they're going to do anything, mm-hmm. and they do great things. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. before Thurgood O'Brien broke through, not really a lot of people had heard of him but because he'd got such a, a phenomenal work ethic and a pretty good temperament as well and he absolutely loves the game yeah.
4: I think he's done really well in his career It's funny I mentioned Joe Swale I remember when we played Northern Ireland obviously and I watched Joe and his cue action was to die for touch to die for and you thought there's no way that he is not going to be a top player because he, he could, he could, it was just it was obvious you know. it's funny actually Stephen Hendry um, unfulfilled talent imagine <laughs> what he could have been he was, but he, but he, he was He you know he's the opposite end of the spectrum because as an amateur up her way he won the Scottish amateur twice in a row he was 15 or something and, and he was beaten see then young guys weren't brilliant players they were just you know pot a few balls it was all old guys but Stephen was the only one that came through and he'd uh, he's the opposite end. obviously um, went on to do everything but he again you just knew he was going to, you know because it didn't make it clear that the Dave Gilbert I was speaking about
2: was not yeah. the David Gilbert now oh. because you know no. he's just making that doubly clear uh, A yeah. small guy was wasn't saying. it yeah, yeah but th- there was two Dave Gilberts that was yeah. yeah. and because there are so many pitfalls there's so many life issues that get in the way obstacles to people becoming really good players you can never actually definitely say yeah he is going to be no. something else no The only exception to that is Ronnie O'Sullivan. I played him when he was ten, and he was obvious—obvious even then. He was out of this world, Mm. and still is. And he may feature, who
1: knows, on the next edition. But that's it for now. So join us for the last edition, and we will get to the end of the alphabet in our next pro—I'm going to say pro podcast. Next podcast.
0: Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring 18 plus.